0: We'll open up to John chapter 2 as we continue on in our Don't Miss This series. Pastor Al will be preaching on the beginning of chapter 3 next week. We'll continue in the series. But we've got all of chapter 2 to look at this morning. I want to start with a story. The story goes, a man bought a new house. He liked the house, he liked the property, he liked everything about it, but He moved in and he realized that there was a utility pole right near the end of the driveway. And he didn't really think much of it. But after he moved in, especially after a few months, he noticed that guests that would come over occasionally hit the pole on the way out. It just was in a bad spot. It was a very difficult position. And so he called up the utility company and he told them, hey, there's a problem. Can you move this pole? It's a hazard. And they said, well, sir, you know, according to our records, it was putting, put in two specifications. It's all within code. Uh, we don't see that it's a hazard. He said, but it's a hazard because people are hitting it, and it's dangerous. Well, sir, we're going to need proof. We, we, we just don't agree with you. So they sent out a supervisor. The supervisor pulled in their driveway, took out their tape measure, their laser levels, whatever they do, measured everything up, sure enough, all within code, and and. They said, it wasn't their problem. You just need to be more careful. The man, of course, was very disappointed. You can probably see where this is going. He went back into his house, and within a few moments, he heard a loud thud. As the technician, when backing up, hit the utility pole. The next day, a crew showed up and moved the pole. They had all the proof that they needed. We tend to be very skeptical, and that's good. We want proof of things. Jesus faced that in his day as well. People want proof. And Jesus wants to give us proof. We talk a lot about faith as Christians. And yes, we must have faith. But it is not faith based on nothing. It is faith in something. And Jesus wants to give us that something. He gives us proof. John says that the whole reason he wrote the book of John ...to give us proof of who Jesus is, a testimony, an eyewitness testimony about Jesus. And so we have proof throughout Scripture, specifically in four basic forms. We have in Scripture what God says about Jesus. There are times when, such as at Jesus' baptism, a, a voice from heaven comes and says, this is my Son, whom I love. And we have a testimony from God about Jesus... We also have the Old Testament testimony, the prophecies that foretell about Jesus. So we have what God says about Jesus. We then have what others say about Jesus. That's the whole point of the gospel. Also, you saw in the last passage, a brother would go and get another brother. Hey, come and meet this guy. This is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. Now, sometimes those witnesses aren't reliable. Sometimes they don't quite understand what they're saying, and we'll see that as we move through this book. We also have what Jesus says about himself. His teachings tell us something about who he is. The claims about himself, he says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And then as Pastor Al will look at next week, Jesus says, John three fifteen, anyone, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So we have Jesus' own words saying who he is. Then we have Jesus' actions. We get to peek into his life through the gospel writers, through their eyewitness, into things that Jesus did. And we see his compassion. It is stunning that out of so many of the different ways that he heals people, It appears in Scripture that I believe every time, if not almost every time, whenever there is a leper, that's a a skin disease that you get by touching someone. How does Jesus heal them? He touches them. doesn't have to at all. But it's his compassion. He specifically is willing to touch that diseased flesh in order to heal them. We see his faithfulness, that his actions are constantly in line with God's revealed will through his word. We'll see that in a little bit in the cleansing of the temple in this passage. We see it in how he deals with people such as Nicodemus and answering his questions, challenging him lovingly. We see in how he deals with the Samaritan woman later on in the book of John. This rabbi, this Jewish teacher should not have even been seen speaking to a woman and yet he engages her in conversation. And he points her to himself as her savior. We see His action declaring who he is as he cries at Lazarus' funeral. And he weeps as he sees the hurt that's going on there. Hurt he knows he's about to make go away, and yet he sees what they're going through. Then there's a special sort of actions that we see in the book of John. And throughout the Gospels. We call them miracles. John prefers the term signs. If you look at chapter 2, verse 11, i want to jump into the middle of this passage says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, it's not that John doesn't believe in miracles. He does, but he believes the miracles have a very specific purpose. They are a sign, a proof of who Jesus is. In the first six chapters of John are focused on these signs. There's one after another after another. These proofs of who Jesus is. In John chapter 3, again, Pastor Al will speak on this next week, but Nicodemus understands this. He says in verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. You see what Nicodemus is picking up on? The signs prove something about Jesus. He's not quite sure what it is. At the very least, God is with him. But he wants to know more. They are a form of testimony, which is the whole point of John's gospel. I've read this before. John chapter 20, verse 31. John writes, these are written, this whole gospel, these are written So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we have that. The miracles show Jesus' power. His power over nature, that he can calm things like wind and waves. Even nature must obey him. His power over unseen spiritual, even demonic forces. As he commands, he speaks to a demon, and the demon has to obey. His power over life and death. As he raises Lazarus from the dead. His power even over sin as he dies on the cross and rises from the dead. Jesus is seen in his miracles to be incredibly powerful. But there's another aspect of the miracles that I want to make sure as we go through the book of John we don't miss. Because it's an important aspect. Nicodemus... Doesn't understand this. And Jesus points it out to him in verse 3. If you go back to John 3, Nicodemus has just declared, You are doing what you're doing from God. I know that because of these miracles. It's a pretty easy statement to understand. And you would expect Jesus to follow up by talking about the miracles. But what does he say? John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And understand what's happening. Nicodemus is talking about these signs, these miracles. Jesus talks about the kingdom. Some people will say, well, Jesus changes the subject to what he wants to talk about. I don't believe that at all. Jesus understands what Nicodemus is talking about a whole lot more than Nicodemus does. You see, these signs, these miracles show not only the proof of who Jesus is, but they are a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven. They are a glimpse into the very kingdom of heaven, a kingdom where sickness is conquered, where there is no death, where food never runs out, where there's constant rejoicing, where all of nature operates according to God's sovereign plan. When you see a miracle, we should be thinking, I want to live in a world like that. That's where I want to live. And so as we turn to John chapter 2, starting in verses 1 through 12, we're going to look at this first miracle, as John calls it. It's a very interesting miracle because very few people even get to see what is going on. Let me read this just to set it before us. John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Now, on the surface, this is a very easy to understand story. There's a wedding. Probably. Scholars tell us it was most likely a very close family friend or even family to Jesus. The reason they think that is why was the mother concerned about this? Why did Mary care unless it was a close relative and she felt some obligation or a very close friend? So this is probably not some stranger's wedding. And at the wedding, they run out of wine. Wine was a common drink in that day. The water was seldom very pure to drink, and so the wine was safe to drink. There's always rumors that go around it was a much watered-down wine. Scholars say it was somewhat more watered-down. Probably a a cup of wine, a a glass of wine, would have had equal alcoholic content to today's beer. So it was not non-alcoholic. But the groom was responsible at the wedding to care for the guests, Understand what's going on here in Hebrew culture. The groom had to provide for the feast. It's very different than us today where the bride's parents pay for for the wedding. Here, it was the groom's responsibility. These feasts could go on and on and on for hours and sometimes even days. And the groom had to supply the food and, of course, the wine. Now, we have to understand something else about this. The Hebrew culture was what is known as a shame and honor culture. This is very different than us. In a shame and honor culture, you had to do the right things or you bring shame on your family. It's similar, I think, today to some Asian cultures. A little different than us. We look at things in terms of problem-solution. There's a problem, just fix it, make the solution. For them, the problem wasn't so much that they ran out of wine. Yes, that's the initial problem. But because the groom had a responsibility, it would bring shame on the groom and shame on the entire groom's family, not just at the wedding. This is more than just people speaking behind their back. This would have been a mark on their family for years and years to come. It brought shame to them. Shame extends beyond the situation. It sticks to them. And so Jesus' mother, it's interesting here that she's not even named. Because there's a theme in the book of John to downplay the role of Mary in Jesus' life. You'll see that as we walk through this. Not that she was horrible or unimportant, but I have to wonder if by the time John writes his gospel, if already people were starting to give Mary more worship than what she should have gotten through the word of God. And so he calls her Jesus' mother, And she hears that the wine is gone, and she goes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. She's not going to him and saying, Jesus, time to do a miracle. There's no evidence before this that she did miracles. The stories that Jesus had had done done something with clay pigeons and brought them to life or something as a child, those are fabricated. Historians, the most trusted historians, don't believe that those are true whatsoever. They were written at the very least 100, if not 200 years after this and their fabrications. There's no evidence in God's word that Jesus had ever done any miracle. Now, Mary knew some things about Jesus. She might have known that he could do miracles. But I think it's possible that there's a much more, if I could say it this way, earthly explanation. It's pretty obvious from Scripture that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, passed away sometime between uh, when he was 12 and when he was 30, most likely in his teenage years. We say that because there's no more mention of him after an appearance at the temple at age 12. Jesus, in his culture as the oldest son, would have had an obligation to care for his family. It's interesting in Scripture that Jesus is not only called the son of a carpenter, but he's also called a carpenter. Why would he be called a carpenter? It's because he worked to provide for his family. Somebody had to provide for his family. Mary had grown to depend upon Jesus to fix things, to help, to supply their needs. She needed him. So a problem comes up, and I think she simply does what she always did. Hey, Jesus, is there anything you can do about this? I don't know that she expected more than him to go out and buy some wine. I don't know. There's no indication here that she was forcing him, expecting him to do a miracle. But look at his response. Woman, why do you involve me? That word woman is very interesting. He will say this again in the Gospel of John when he's on the cross. And he says woman, and he points to the disciple John and basically says take care of her. The term for woman here is a term of respect, but it is not a term of endurance. It is not a term of closeness. This was a Hebrew word that would have been used for a distant relative or even a stranger. The closest, as D.A. Carson says, that we have in our language is sort of the southern term, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Shows respect. He said the only problem with the word ma'am is that in the south they do use it of their mothers, whereas this Hebrew word was not used of their mothers. Jesus, in some ways, is rebuking his mom. He says, why do you involve me? And and again, this is actually a very difficult phrase. He's saying, what is that between you and me? What do I have to do with that? I'm in a different situation than you are. I'm not involved in this. Why are you involving me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, on the surface, Mary, I think... It's just concerned. There's a shameful situation and she's wanting to know if her son can help. But he understands there's more at stake. This is now going to be about his ministry. And his ministry is leading up to, as he says, my hour has not yet come. And for Jesus, that doesn't mean the hour for him to serve. It means the hour for him to go to the cross. He understands there's more going on here as Jesus always does. But it's interesting Mary's response. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And that again is a theme throughout the Gospels. People come to Jesus wanting him to do what they want. He issues a rebuke and then they respond in an ongoing faith. It's like they move from exercising authority over him to being a believer under him. And Mary here is simply saying, I just trust you, Jesus. Whatever you want to do. She backs away. This interaction between Jesus and his mother is far from Jesus being maneuvered into doing something he doesn't want to do. It's actually the exact opposite. This is Jesus clearly saying what he is about to do is because he chooses to do it, not because of his mother or anyone else. And that, again, is another theme throughout the book of John. There will be those that come and say, hey, Lazarus is sick, please come. And he says, no. I'm not going right now. There are those that will say, don't go to the Passover. He says, no, I'm going. There are those that say, hey, let's go to Jerusalem. He says, not yet. And then he goes on his own. Jesus does what he does because of his plan and his purpose. And then he goes on into these large jars for water. Verse 6. Six stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons each. So who could do the math? Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. How much water do we have here? 120 to 180 gallons. Very good. I have it in my notes, but you did it in your head. 120 to 180 gallons. That's a lot of water. Now, notice what kind of jars they were. This was not drinking water because they didn't really drink water. This was water for ceremonial washing. To the Jewish people, they understood that as they interacted during their day-to-day lives, as they touched things, they were touching things that were spiritually unclean. This is not personal hygiene. This is spiritual hygiene. They were touching unclean things, specifically Gentiles. And so, when they came to a meal, they had to wash their hands of the spiritual uncleanness. They had to wipe away the shame that they would have accumulated in their life by touching various things that were unclean, so that then they could touch water and not be infected by the uncleanness. That's what these water jars were for. Jesus tells the servants to fill them to the brim, take some of it out. In- Take it to the master of the banquet. When the master of the banquet tastes it, he tastes good wine. When did the miracle occur? It's a stunning miracle in the fact that it's not stunning at all. There's no bell that rings. There's no, and suddenly the light descended from heaven and the water was changed to wine and everybody saw it. Nobody saw it. Nobody. Nobody sees this miracle except a very select few. And they even have to figure it out. At some point between them filling the water and the water being dipped out and taken to the master of the banquet, at some point in there, it changed to wine. We don't know when. The master of the banquet doesn't go, miracles of miracles, the water. He doesn't even know. He just knows they've got some good wine. He goes to the groom. The groom doesn't know where it comes from. In fact, John specifically points out only the servants knew. And of course, we know Mary would have known and Jesus' disciples. This is not a very public miracle, is it? This is not a, hey, everybody, here I am, check me out. But it is something that the disciples looked at. And it says in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. He revealed his glory. How does this reveal his glory? Well, if you're a big wine drinker, you might say, well, it's all about good wine. It's not really all about good wine. It's about a good Savior who has power over all things. And it's about his good kingdom. That in his kingdom, all shame is erased. All shame of our inadequacies is erased. All shame and uncleanliness from our sins and the sins of the world that needs to be washed away is erased. You see, after those jars were filled with wine, they could no longer be used for ceremonial cleansing. They contained wine now. The disciples look at all this. They realize that something great has happened. And it says they believe. And yet throughout the book of John, as in the other gospels, what we'll see is, yes, they believed, but they are going to struggle immensely along the way. And their belief is going to be stretched and tested and will grow and mature and will even at times falter and stumble. It's an impartial, immature belief, but it's the beginning. It's the inkling. There's something here we have never seen before. And what do we do about this? I'm not, and I assume you aren't, day-to-day concerned about running out of wine. I'm guessing that's not a huge problem for us. Even if you drink wine, there's lots of places you could go and get some. And you know, if the wine runs out, really not a big deal. Just turn on the tap and drink some water. It's okay. Juice, milk, all sorts of things. I'm not worried about running out of wine. So knowing that Jesus has the power to change water into wine is not incredibly helpful to me. But I think there's a lot more going on in this story. Jesus takes that which is shameful, running out of wine at the wedding, and he transforms it into something that is wonderful and beautiful. He saves the best wine for the last. And the jars for ceremonial cleansing represent the shame of our sin in this sinful world. And Jesus transforms that representation of this ongoing need to be cleansed into a celebration of the wedding feast of the groom who has come. Remember what he told his disciples at the end of John chapter 1? He said, you believe, verse 50, Because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, speaking to Nathaniel here. You will see greater things than that. Verse 51, he then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascend and ascending and descending on the son of man. And I said when we looked at that passage, this was not just about a vision, this was about the meeting place between God and man. And when Jacob had that vision in the Old Testament, he said, this is Bethel, the house of God. Jesus says, this is happening on me. I am, not me, Jesus. Jesus is the meeting place between God and man. And what happens when God meets with us? The great wedding feast that goes on and on forever and ever. And shame is all removed. Here we see what happens when God breaks through to our shameful existence and he turns it into a sin-free celebration of his presence. We're not in trouble if we run out of wine, but we need to know that the shame we've endured and even the shame that we've caused can be transformed by Jesus Christ into something wonderful for our good and his glory. This miracle is a sign of who Jesus is. Now I want to, and by doing that, it's a proof. And now I want to look at another proof. In this case, it's an action, something that Jesus does. Let's look at when he cleanses the temple, starting in verse 13, just through 17. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The time of this is the Passover. Jerusalem would have been busting at the seams with people coming into town to worship at the temple. Because of all these people that needed to worship at the temple, traveling from all around, people sold animals that they could use for the sacrifice. There was nothing wrong with this. It was a very common and and totally legal practice under the Old Testament law. Rather than bringing your own bull, you could bring money and buy one, or a goat, or a sheep, or a dove. So it was common practice. The other thing is these money changers. Roman money had a a picture of the emperor. And much of it even has a, a description underneath that declares him to be the son of God. And so to the Hebrews, this was, or the Jewish people, this was detestable. It was idolatry. And they would not allow the Roman coin to come into the temple. So you had to exchange it for a different sort of coin that they would allow to come in. Some people say they charged way too much money. Some scholars say there's really not a whole lot of evidence of that. It was common practice. These things were, to some degree, necessary. And were not necessarily abusive in and of themselves. The problem wasn't so much what they were doing. It is, according to this passage, the theme that comes up again and again, it's where they were doing it. Where they are doing it. The location, they are in the temple courts. This is the area outside of the temple building proper, inside of the porches, which in the Old Testament language would have been like the fence or the gates. And they're in this courtyard where the people would come in constantly to offer their sacrifices. It was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship and sacrifice, a mediation between God and humanity. Instead, There are pens of animals. And you can imagine how loud it must have been. And there are people there giving money and exchanging money. All the while in the background, the priests are doing their service and performing the sacrifices that needed to be done. And so Jesus makes a whip. I have heard this taught so many times as a righteous anger passage. Jesus, in a righteous and good way, loses his cool. Jesus is so angry. He gets a whip and he's whipping those money changers. The more I read this, the less I saw that. Look at the passage. He found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Verse 15, so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts. Then he explains the all that he's driving out with a whip. Sheep, I'm sorry, lost my place. Sheep and cattle. How do you drive out sheep and cattle? Do you know how you get them to move? You get a whip. It does not say he whipped the people here. It doesn't say it. Let's be very careful how we speak about the Son of God. He is cleansing the temple. And the other reason I say that, it says he turned over the tables of the money changers. Is he upset at what they're doing? Absolutely. Is he being completely unreasonable? Those animals would have been found outside the temple courts. The money could have been picked up. He was not ruining their livelihood. Look at what he says to the one selling doves. Verse 16. It's interesting John points this out. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. He could have gone over, opened the cages, and released all the doves, and those poor guys would have been out of a lot of money. He doesn't. Because the doves couldn't have been recovered. He just says, get them out of here. Understand what Jesus is mad at here. He's mad at the fact that the temple is not being used for what it is. He is not being unreasonable toward these people. Is he angry? Yes. Is he zealous? Does he have zeal for the temple? Absolutely. is, Is it a zeal that allows him to beat somebody up? Absolutely not. I believe it's improper to use this account, as some Christians do, to say it's right to berate other people. Because they are wrong. Jesus' main concern is with cleansing the temple, removing these things. And the disciples understand, as a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9 says, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is passionate about our relationship with God. That we can come uninhibited, unrestrained, un, or not distracted in His presence to worship Him. And these things are hindering that. But then the Jewish people have a question, starting in verse 18. Then the Jews Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. There's proof. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. The people, specifically the leaders, they want proof. What proof, what sign can you offer to say you have the right to do this? They don't understand what he's saying, which is, again, a very common theme in the book of John. It took 46 years to build the temple. He is claiming that if they tear it down, and that's an interesting phrase, because later on in his trial, he will be accused of saying he's going to tear down the temple. That's not what he said. He said, you will tear down this temple. I will raise it again in three days. But he's claiming something, something much more than a, about a building. Jesus is the temple. He's the meeting place between us and God. He's the way for our sins to be forgiven and cleansed. And the disciples are beginning to understand this. He points forward to the cross And the resurrection. And it's not until that happens that they can look back and begin to understand Jesus. And I just want to make a side application here. There are some today that want to say, well, well, the cross and, and the resurrection didn't really occur, but we can look at what Jesus taught, and He taught good things, and He taught us to be loving, and that's okay. It is not what Scripture says at all. What Scripture actually says is you will never understand who Jesus Christ is if you don't first look at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Without that, nothing else makes sense. Everything he did pointed forward to the cross. The people saw and they believed, and again, this is a partial belief, an immature and unformed sort of belief. And Jesus knew this. It says, verse 24, he wouldn't entrust himself to them. Jesus doesn't just come and lay it all out on the table because they would not have understood. Only true faith allows us to see who Jesus is. Jesus understood that as people, we often get it wrong. We have to be careful with our ideas about Jesus. It's good to shape and form ideas about Christ. We have to do that. It's part of our faith. But we always have to come back and check them against who Jesus really is. Against the word of God. We want proof. It's very natural. It's natural to want confirmation of who Jesus is. And he is very willing to get it. The problem is... We only want to accept so often the proof that lines up with what we've already believed. I sat and I watched a debate once in Chicago, actually at the church that I'll be at next week, Moody Church. And it was a debate between two scholars and I remember the one scholar, a Christian scholar, asked the secular scholar a question because the secular scholar was saying he doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Christian scholar said, if archaeologists were able to find unrefutable proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, would you believe it? And he said, no, I wouldn't because I don't believe it happened. And I think any proof that says it did is wrong. You see, he had already made up his mind. I have a word for that. It's called faith. (laughs) He believed something to be true no matter what. I get that. I applaud faith. I applaud belief, but call it what it is. Don't act like that faith is different than our faith. Because he was not willing to look at proof whatsoever. We must have faith that does look at proof. That looks at scripture. Listen to who Jesus is. What he says. Look at what he does. Don't Miss it. There's always so much more going on with everything that Jesus does. It's more than about a wedding. It's more than about merchants at a temple. Jesus is Lord of all. He is the coming groom whose wedding feast will never end. He is the eternal meeting place between God and humanity. And through him, we are made clean. And we can stand and worship unashamed in God's holy presence forever. The proof is here. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, praise you for your word. I praise you that your son wanted people to know who he is. And that testimony, that proof continues to cry out today as we open the pages of John's gospel and other places in scripture. And we see the proof. May we have eyes of faith to see it for what it truly is. The testimony. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And that by believing, we may have eternal life in his name. And Father, if there's anyone here today that is struggling with shame in their own life, maybe because of what other people have done or maybe because of what they've done, Father, may they find great comfort in this that you turn shame into celebration for your glory, that you cleanse us perfectly once and for all from all shame. And God, if there's anyone thinking that they can't be with you and have a relationship with you, may the zeal for Jesus Christ and the presence of God show us you long to be with us undistracted, unhindered, May you come, may we invite you into our hearts to cleanse away the distractions that we might see you, the true meeting place between God and humanity. And in a moment, we're going to take communion. And we will testify, we will declare a proof that we believe Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave and promises eternal life. And I pray if there's anyone here looking for a reason to believe, may our testimony be a part of that proof that points them then to the Word of God that points them to Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.